0: Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm your host, Mandy Johnston, and today's show promises to be a very interesting one because we'll be diving into the world of Silicon Valley and the ongoing saga of Sam Bankman Fried with Joshua Oliver of the Financial Times. And then staying stateside, Rupert Murdoch testifies that Fox commentators endorsed Trump's 2020 election campaign and Jeremy Peters of The New York Times will be giving us all of the latest news on the trial that's gripping America. Later on, we'll take a closer look at the gender pay gap as we approach International Women's Day and how Irish businesses are coping with their new reporting requirements. As always, I'd love to hear from you so you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com or connect with me on Twitter at StockNT. Last week, there was an item on the programme about Russian sanctions and one of our regular listeners contacted us to say that we maybe should do a discussion about Nord Stream 2. So that's something that we'll be coming back to in the future. Now, the company FTX, which was once valued at $32 billion, collapsed in bankruptcy in November after being unable to meet a wave of withdrawal demands from its customers. Prosecutors said the collapse was one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. A trial is looming for FTX owner Sam Bankman-Fried and here to help us catch up on the latest latest going on is Joshua Oliver from the Financial Times. Joshua, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Great to be here. Now, you kindly joined us in November when nobody on this side of the pond knew who Sam Bankman-Fried was and you explained all of the goings-on at FTX and Almeida. Can you just give us um, a precy, a kind of recap on the the charges that Sam Bankman-Fried is facing in the United States and what were the circumstances that led to the collapse of that company?
1: Gosh, it's quite a question. It is. Um, Uh, I mean, the, the, the charges that he's facing from the U S there are civil charges and then there are criminal charges. Um, they all basically boil down to, you know, a couple of buckets. And the the biggest thing is the way that customer money was handled at FTX. You know, people were handing over money to this company, you know, their customers, um, and and were trusting that they were going to hold on to it sort of roughly equivalent to a bank, you know, that that this was their money Belonged to the customers and FTX was going to look after it for them. And if they asked for it back, they could get it back. Mm. Now we know that that didn't work out because people started asking for their money back in November and the money wasn't available. Um, So the, the fraud charges really stem from, you know, how was the customer money being handled? Now the accusation is that FTX used customer money to allow it to lend huge amounts of money over to another company, Alameda Research, which is also controlled and owned by Sam Bankman-Fried. And, you know, this is lending on the scale of billions and billions of dollars, basically free loans, so it could even just look like the money is being handed over, you know, it's counted as a loan, but does that even really matter at that scale? And, you know, the people weren't being told that this is what was being done with their money. Um, There are other aspects to the the kind of fraud case in terms of, you know, whether Sam Bankman-Fried and people at FTX were being honest about that. That relationship and other more technical aspects of it, but the you know the, the main thing is that they weren't telling their investors and their customers the truth about the actual relationship between FTX and Alameda and how the customer money was going to be treated. Um, and then there's a little sideline, another bucket, which is about campaign finance in the United States. You know the rules about who you can give money to and how you can make political donations. Um, and there are accusations that you know in in the course of vast, vast you know millions of dollars that Sam Bankman Fried and his Uh, lieutenants were spending on uh, donations to both republicans and democrats that they were also you know skirting and breaking the rules that are supposed to govern money in politics
0: Mm. now as a result of all of that he is facing eight charges and i read somewhere 115 years in prison so it's a you know it's it's a big trial that's ahead of him and very serious consequences for him
1: absolutely i mean this is what i think is technically known as throwing the book right Mm. um and I think it's clear that the you know U.S. officials have have decided to make an example of Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, you know he is he was the face of crypto when mm-hmm. crypto was on the way up, and he was sort of the poster child for maybe crypto can actually be something good and something responsible. And now that that's turned out you know not to be true, um, they are absolutely taking it out on him. And I mean, the the 115 years is a kind of theoretical maximum. I think people would be surprised if even if he were convicted, he got, you know, that. But it's certainly going to be, you know, there's very, very serious potential consequences and potentially many years in jail. Um, And that trial is scheduled to start in October, although there's always a chance, you know, in in the court system that these things can get pushed back.
0: Mm, And a sign from the authorities uh, for sure, that this cult of the CEO is over. The types of you know the people we've seen like Elizabeth Holmes, Adam Newman, um, they're really cracking down, and he could be the the poster boy for when the authorities kind of finally kind of take this serious, and and. It's actually seen right through to the end. Now, you wrote a very fine and detailed piece on the final days of the company that I just want to take people through for a second. You went to see him. Uh, Where was he and how was he when you saw him?
1: Yes, yeah, I did. I did go to see him um, in the middle of January. He was and is... Um, at his parents' house in um, Palo Alto, California, so near San Francisco, right in the heart of, you know, Silicon Valley next to Stanford University where both of his um, parents were professors, law professors, in fact. Um, You know, it's a a lovely, you know, kind of suburban picture in the United States, you know, beautiful house, very big, you know, nice garden. You know, he's sort of, he's not quite living in his parents' basement, but he is sort of, you know, the... the, um, kid who's, you know, had a bad turn in their life and had to come home to, to live with the parents for a while, just on an absolutely extreme, uh, level. Um, but you know, it, the, one of the things that was really strange about that experience is that it all kind of, in a way can seem like quite a normal family scene. I mean, that the, his parents were incredibly gracious to me. They, you know, made small talk and said, you know, hi, how are you? And, um, it didn't feel as though, you know, here's a group of people who are in the eye of a hurricane mm. of, you know, potential legal consequences. Um, Sam himself, he's, you know, in a way, you know, he, I kind of imagined in some ways that he would be a completely changed person as a result of this kind of huge fall from grace. And as far as his, you know, his personality, the what he's like to chat to, he's not really changed at all. Um, obviously, the circumstances are, are incredibly different. Um I mean, one thing that's very strange about all of this is that he's still talking to to people yeah. like me. I mean, a- any lawyer, right, would tell you, you don't talk to the press when you're going to be facing, you know, a criminal, huge, high-profile criminal trial. Um, Sam, you know, doesn't, doesn't buy that. He doesn't see it that way. Um, he thinks it's important to try and kind of shape public perception through his intervention in the media. But um, one thing that I do think has been changing is he's he is getting more and more careful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we would speak and, and even when he would go on the record, you know, in, before the new year, um, he was careful, but he was willing to say more. And this time around, you know, he was incredibly careful and guarded in what he was willing to say on the record, because I think he's starting to realize that the the stakes are high.
0: Yeah, getting a little bit more careful is not a hard endeavour for him because uh, just reading your piece, he didn't really listen to his lawyers or the legal advice he was getting as the company was kind of spiralling down, did he? Can you just take us through a little bit about the atmosphere that you heard about, the atmosphere that was around his his core team in those final few days of the collapse?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are kind of there are three groups, you know, in that final week. There are three kind of storylines to follow. Um, the the first one that I want to emphasize actually is is what w- what it was like for the everyone else who was working at the company but was not involved in the kind of crisis talks about what they were going to do. You know, the, there's several hundred other employees mm. who thought that they were working at this amazing startup and that it was one of the most successful companies. You know really ever. um, And that they were all probably going to make millions through stock options and that they were set for life. And then in literally in the space of of one working week from Monday to Friday, it it completely falls apart around their ears. And um, one thing that, that Sam McAfee didn't do during that time is communicate very much. I mean, he communicated a little, but not much to the kind of rank and file of people who were working there and living right down in the Bahamas. So, I mean, if you put yourself in their shoes, they've Uprooted their lives, they've moved to you know this island. They're working at this company. They think it's the bee's knees, and then all of a sudden it falls apart. So people are you know completely panicking, trying to get flights out of the country. On top of that, there's a hurricane blowing in. Um, so you know the the stories from ordinary employees are are quite remarkable, and they very you know they were really going through it. Um, And then, you know, closer to the center of the action, you have kind of two opposing camps. Um, One is around Sam McMurray with his closest allies and and lieutenants, the people who live together. These are all mostly, you know, many of them roommates in this big um, multi-million dollar penthouse in the Bahamas. And they are trying to find a way to kind of keep the company going and save it. And what they have to do in order to save the company is find more cash so that they can pay back customers who are asking for their money back. So they're on this kind of frantic um, fundraising drive, basically trying to find new investors who can put some cash into the company, you know, refloat the ship, as it were, and then they can they can kind of dust themselves off and carry on. Um, that's, you know, incredibly feverish atmosphere. People kind of went three days basically without sleep. And um, they're up against... A kind of opposing group of executives who are mostly centered in the U.S. part of the business. Um, the key figure there is a man named Ryan Miller, who was the um, general counsel of FTX U.S., and he kind of emerges as the leader of the group of people who are saying um, from quite early on in the, in the week of the collapse, you know, we have to file for bankruptcy, we have to file for bankruptcy. This company effectively is bankrupt. I mean, they, they are not able to kind of um, meet their financial obligations. So they, there's a group of people who see that as – the only thing to do and are um, starting to also bring in outside lawyers, a law firm called Sullivan and Cromwell, to try and make arrangements so that they can file the company for bankruptcy. So you have a clash. you know, The group that thinks we've got to file for bankruptcy and file in the U.S. as quickly as we can, and the group who thinks we can still save it, right? We can still raise some money and save this thing. And that's kind of the, the clash that plays out over just you know a very intense couple of days Um, between the Bahamas and and New York and various other locations um, as they try to figure out how they're going to resolve the company. I mean, we know how it ends Mm. because they did file for bankruptcy. Um, But, you know, the the circumstances that led up to that were, you know, very tense and dramatic.
0: Absolutely. And Joshua, you had access to a lot of the text messaging that was going back and forward from Ryan Miller and others, which kind of leads. It's like a chronological. It's like a Netflix episode, actually, when you read it. Some of the stuff is quite unbelievable. And um, as you say there, at one point, Ryan Miller uh, advised that they had to turn off trading and halt activity and then recommend a controlled decision person to work outside the council on the next steps. And in all of this, Sam Bankman-Fried just seems kind of willfully blind and delusional to a point where it's kind of hard to believe that he actually got a company up and running in the first place. Can you just, how did you get access to that? Is that part of the court documentation? Where are things going now for him?
1: I mean, that's a really, I mean, it's a really interesting observation Um you know it kind of seems it did seem to some people like it was delusional. but I think what's important to remember is that this is you know a company in cryptocurrency that had built its success on not doing things by the book right you know they they were located off in the Bahamas because they you know they had a special kind of digital crypto regulation in the Bahamas that was more favorable to the company than it would have been. In the U.S., they had to separate out their U.S. business so that they could kind of deal with the regulatory issues there. And they just, you know, they, they saw it as part of their DNA to do things differently. So if someone comes into you and says, you know, the obvious conventional solution in this circumstance is you do X, you file for bankruptcy, they're not the group of people who are going to say, oh, yes, we better do that. Um, their programming and their mindset is very much, you know, we are smarter than the system and we are going to make our, you know, reach our own decision. So, you know, they had to get Sam kind of on his own terms to come to the decision to, you know, hand over his company and it wasn't easy. Um, and as far as, you know, the, the records and the kind of, um, the, you know, the messages that are reproduced in uh, the article in the FT, um, some of that is in the court documents, um, particularly in the bankruptcy, lots of, you know, new information is coming to light basically you know every week Um, and then others are ones that i got from sources who i agreed not to name
0: Mm. and i see some of his former associates are making plea deals all over the place can you tell us about who's been saying what
1: well we don't know very much about exactly what they've been saying because the you know the prosecutors in the u.s are going to keep their cards close to the chest until the trial um but we do know that two of the top people in you know the the um sam bankman fried orbit Mm. have pleaded guilty and they are cooperating so that's um gary wang who's a you know a long time basically you know a friend of sam's going back to university and even to um you know school days who was the co-founder co-owner and chief technology officer um at ftx so very very close associate and then caroline ellison who was the chief executive of Alameda Research, you know, also someone who'd known Sam for years, um, and the two of them had had romantic involvement, kind of on and off in the past. Um, so, two people who were really close to Sam and who pretty quickly, you know, cut a deal. Um, the charges f- uh, against Sam were brought out in, you know, what is by legal standards record time. And so, you know, the the former prosecutors who I've spoken to about this say, you know, these people must have been in intensive interviews day in and day out to get all the information over to the prosecutors and one would assume that they have given a very, very detailed picture of their account of what happened and that we're, we're probably not going to hear about all of that until the trial.
0: Mm. Um, one of the quotes I saw from the, the judge who was dealing with his bail conditions, and I see he's not happy with those bail conditions and the white picket fence bail, um, life that he's living. He said, why am I being asked to turn him loose in this garden of electronic devices? yeah, it, it's a kind of really unorthodox way of uh, kind of dealing with this period between, you know, actually going to trial and still talking to the press. Um, what's happening on that front? Is there any kind of changes to his bail conditions now to prevent him from communicating more with the outside world?
1: Yeah, this has been in flux for, you know, several weeks now. Um, they, they have not you know, prevented him on a blanket basis from communicating with the outside world. The thing they're really worried about is um, communicating with people who are likely to be witnesses Mm. in the trial. And so particularly former employees, you know, some of whom he's reached out to, you know, tried to communicate with in ways that, um, you know, they were not happy with. So there's a lot of concern about that, you know, from a practical point of view, it means, you know, he's, he's on email now instead of WhatsApp. But, um, he's not been stopped from talking to the press um, or, you know, or from, a, from anyone else as far as I know. Um, but again, it, you know, it does speak to, you know, the pressure is 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 still there and is still mounting. Um, and he's kind of under more and more constraints as uh, the trial gets closer.
0: Mm. Well, the trial is set for October. I think that's right. And Joshua, I have no doubt you'll be speaking to him again before then. uh, And hopefully you'll be coming back on Taking Stock to tell us what's happening. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Joshua Oliver from the Financial Times. Joshua, thank you once again for joining us today. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. News Talk show E Mandy Johnston. After the break, gender pay parity is a very complex issue and there's certainly no easy answers. But we'll be discussing the latest developments and what they mean for Irish businesses and employees. Stay tuned for more right after this short break. Walter on News Talk showing Mandy Johnston now it's time to turn our attention to the issue of the gender pay gap in Ireland new reporting figures are in and unfortunately they're showing us that we're not quite making the progress that some of us had hoped for when it comes to equal pay for men and women it's a very complex issue and there are certainly no easy answers joining me now to discuss their latest report on this issue is Do O'Doherty, who's a tax partner in PwC's people and organisation practice Doon you're very welcome back to News Talks taking stock
2: Hi Mandy Thanks.
0: Now, just to kick us off, let's start off with that. What exactly is a gender pay gap? How is it calculated?
2: So a gender pay gap at a high level, Mandy, is the difference between the average hourly pay of males in a company and the average hourly pay of females females in a company and that's irrespective of a person's role their title their seniority their tenure Um, so let's take a company that has an average hourly pay for males of 20 euro an hour and an average annual pay hourly pay of say 18 euro an hour for females so the difference is two euro we express that as a percentage of the male figure gives us a headline gender pay gap figure of 10% and that's what that company would report now just to to, to emphasize, and you, you said it in the introduction around equal pay, there is a difference, okay? So uh, having a gender pay gap does not necessarily infer an absence of equal pay for equal work, and that's a legal requirement in Ireland. So there are many other reasons why a company might have a general a, a gender pay gap. So there could be occupational segregation, let's take the aviation industry that we spoke about before, it has more pilots that are male than pilots who are female that lead to a gender pay gap or we might have an underrepresentation of females at senior management levels that will lead to a gender pay gap or you might have more women taking up lower paid roles and from a sexual perspective we'd see that across the retail sector for example so even though a company complies with its legal requirement equal pay for equal work mm-hmm. it might still have a gender pay gap for any number of reasons now
0: there are new reporting arrangements that the government introduced uh, last year for larger companies and what they have to report on in relation to the gender pay gap specifically. What do they have to do now um, and how are they now re- measuring and reporting on pay? Okay.
2: So there are 11 broad metrics that a company has to report on and they span things like the pay gap, the bonus gap, details on temporary workers, uh, individuals on part-time work. You also need to break your employees into quartiles or pay bands so from the highest to the lowest. Uh, Employers also need to point out in their reports what they think the reasons for those gaps are and what steps they're going to take to help um, close the gap or at least eliminate it over time. Those rules currently apply to uh, large employers so those with 250 or more employees. In 2024 it'll capture employers with 150 or more and then in 2025 the vast majority of employers will be in so anyone with uh, more than uh, 50 employees.
0: And those bigger companies uh, over 250 employees have they found it difficult or has that been an easy thing for them to do do you think? So they've
2: reported now they Mm. have their first reporting deadline over that was December 2022 On balance Mandy I'd say the vast majority of companies found it a challenge and I'd call out probably two main factors there the first was the timeline it was very tight there had been talk of the legislation for quite some time but it was only enacted in July 2021 2021, Regulations were only published in June 2022 and it was in June that companies had to choose their snapshot date and had to start preparing. And then the reporting deadline was December 22. So a very tight six month, six month turnaround. The other thing I would point to is that there is still some ambiguity in terms of the regulations and how companies interpret those, particularly around the treatment of equity. So on balance, I think it was a challenge. I think companies were very focused on simply crunching the numbers and publishing their report. Uh, And it's only now that we're starting to see organisations unpick the data and look for insight. So this is a really interesting, interesting time.
0: Yeah, but we're often very critical of government not moving fast enough. So fair play to Minister Roderick O'Gorman, who brought this in, pushed it along. And if it's not measured, you can't see it. So, you know, that's Absolutely. a good thing. Absolutely, you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. Pu- Push them along a little bit. So PwC have done their own report yeah. uh, into this issue. What, what did you find and who did you assess?
2: OK, so we trawled the websites of over 500 of Ireland's largest employers who had published their reports. There is plans to have a government portal in place um, so that we can have one one stop shop for all the data but that wasn't in place for December so we individually trawled the websites um, and we analysed the data of 500 companies as I said what we're finding is that the average gender pay gap across those organisations in Ireland is about 12.6% now the latest figures we have from Eurostat who measured Ireland's gender pay gap in 2019 they were coming out at a figure of 11.3% so small differential probably due to the fact that they may quite likely have used kind of different calculation methodologies, not unexpected. They were looking at it from a national perspective. The legislation currently only focuses on those large employers that we spoke about. And also Eurostat was looking at it in 2019. The Irish companies were measuring 2021 data. In that period, in that gap, we had the pandemic and we know we know what that did to female participation in particular in the, in the workforce. So that's the pay gap. We also looked then at the bonus gap, um, and the bonus gap figures are coming out at 22.9%. Now, interestingly, 25% of the reports we analysed indicated that they didn't pay bonuses or they just didn't disclose their bonus figures.
0: Sorry, they didn't pay bonuses for women or they just they didn't, didn't pay, pay both. bonuses at okay.
2: all. Of the companies that do have bonus schemes, to your point, um, it was broad. Uh, proportionality between the percentage of men and women who are entitled to bonus. So about two thirds of employees, male and female in companies, were entitled to bonuses, but there's still a large bonus gap. So we look behind that to see what's driving that. And our initial analysis indicates that it's based on how companies define a bonus. Mm. So everyone might get a Christmas bonus of a nominal value but it's only those large discretionary bonuses maybe paid on you know performance or KPIs that are paid to more senior members of staff who in a large proportion of sectors tend to be male Mm. and that is driving that bonus gap figure. Mm.
0: Okay, so there's a lot of figures there and there's a lot of different evaluations and a lot of conditionality like the pandemic and stuff where you can't compare like for like. But if you were just giving us an overview of your assessment, would you say it's moving in the right direction? Would you say they're doing enough or it's still a snail's pace? What's your kind of macro assessment of it?
2: It's, It's interesting to look to the UK to draw that comparison. So they introduced gender pay gap legislation in 2017, 2018 was their first reporting deadline and although they are seeing more companies come forward and report voluntarily the dial isn't shifting massively and I think unfortunately with a lot of things particularly in this area there is no silver bullet Mm. and the most important things for companies is to communicate to their employees to their stakeholders their investors to the public to the media that this is going to take time so the kind of things Mandy that we're seeing companies look at now is maybe setting a target for senior female representation at certain levels in the organisation. Taking the initiative to look at policies, so recruitment policies, parental leave policies, or maybe introducing um, certain initiatives like unconscious bias training for for all staff. But some companies, you know, in particular sectors, may have to look at boosting female participation levels by starting to recruit, recruit more female graduates, let's say, from a STEM background. That is absolutely the right thing to do. But introducing more female graduates at a lower pay level within a company is only going to exacerbate that pay gap in the short term. Mm. So while it's the right thing to do, the measurement might be slightly skewed in the, in the short term.
0: Yeah, it might cause um, a, a, glick, a, a blip in, in the figures as they come. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm speaking to Duna Doherty, who's a tax partner in PwC's People and Organisation Practice. And we're talking about the gender pay gap. Um, Duna, in that piece of research that PwC have conducted, um, were there industries who did this particularly badly? that you can call out and is that really the way to move the dial on this when we start looking more closely at actual companies and industries?
2: Sectoral participation, our sectoral identity is uh, a large factor in numbers. So some of the largest gaps were found in the banking sector, finance sector, insurance sector. So insurance had based on our research uh, an average gender pay gap of about 21.1%. Which
0: is a good distance from the average. It
2: is and a high proportion of males in those upper pay bands or upper quartiles that I, that I spoke about. At the lower end of the scale then uh, some of the smallest gaps were in not-for-profit in, in government and there were 12% of companies Mandy who were showing uh, a negative pay gap which means on average the average female pay per hour in those companies is higher
0: than So there's than more females at a higher level in NGOs in the construction industry banking there's more men in those senior management roles.
2: Correct and if we look at manufacturing which is another interesting sector uh, some of the companies in that sector called out the impact of overtime so they offer overtime to all employees male and female but typically it's availed off more by men Hmm. perhaps the females have more responsibilities elsewhere or caring responsibilities uh, and that is causing the male pay, pay profile to be increased in that sector so very dynamic.
0: Mm. I'm just wondering uh, to pick up on something you mentioned earlier there about what is the repercussions for a company uh, if they don't move the dial on this and if they don't is there is there anything other than you know getting bad press that can prevent them from from actually just continuing these practices.
2: And bad press or reputational damage in itself is probably a penalty, a sufficient penalty. Is it
0: the only penalty?
2: I think where we will see companies struggle over time, Mandy, who don't do this correctly, is on a number of factors. Recruitment and retention is a big thing. So every year, PwC publishes a hopes and fears survey, and it came out very strongly this year that employees want to work for companies who play a positive role in society. Uh, Part of that goes to your inclusion and diversity policies and gender pay gap is is at the heart of that. Obviously, as well, from a business perspective, you know, the research speaks for itself. More diverse workforces lead to more creative thought process, more innovation, better decision making. So, so that's quite clear. The other, and, and it's not a penalty necessarily for the companies, it's more a penalty for society and the economy at, uh, as a whole, is we, we produce every year in PwC uh, a Women in Work Index as well. And that has indicated that the benefit to the OECD countries in particular of increasing female participation in the workforce could top six trillion US dollars. So there's a benefit for the individual, a benefit for the employer and a massive benefit potentially for the economy as well. Hmm. So I'm just trying to place
0: myself as an employee e in a company who's not over 250 and doesn't have to report is there any way I can find out what my company do in that regard or do I how can I approach somebody to say am I getting the same salary as my male counterpart in this organization
2: so so that's a, an equal pay uh, obligation on the on the employer and that is an obligation to pay Anyone who does the same work or work of equal value the same amount. Uh, in terms of the gender pay, what I would say to an employee in, in that position is that it is quite likely that your employer will be coming on stream pretty quickly. If there are 150 or 50, it's in the next kind of 18, 24 months. Um, for employers sitting in that position who are looking potentially down the barrel of a gun, it's now understanding what your obligations are what your data is and starting to communicate. So Mm. starting to communicate with the employees in in your position in that example, why we haven't published yet. You know, we're not obliged to yet, but we are starting to look at it and to come with senior business leaders what their role is going to be in the rollout of gender pay gap in the future.
0: Yeah. okay, Um, Dune, I just want to finish up by turning to a slightly but uh, not unrelated topic and that that one of International Women's Day will will be coming up this week and somebody um, said to me yesterday, what are you doing for International Women's Day as if it was like what am I doing for International or what am I doing for Christmas Day like does International Women's Day mean anything to you personally as a woman in business or just as a woman do you, how, what 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 does International Women's Day mean and does it turn the dial in any way on on issues such as gender pay
2: to me, uh, Mandy, i love to say, my husband would say every day is International Women's Day, isn't it, Dune? Um, look, I think it's an opportunity for companies to focus on diversity and inclusion. I wouldn't necessarily be putting the focus solely on, on women. In PwC, a couple of months ago, we launched a This Is Me campaign, Mandy, which really encourages all employees to uh, provide certain self-identification data to us. So. Your sex, uh, your gender, your sexual orientation, your ethnicity, any disability you might have, and and that's really powerful because it'll allow us to take a, a more data-driven approach to developing uh, a diverse workforce. So it's not necessarily just the day it's about how a company approaches it from all aspects Mm. 365 days of the year
0: It's just over recent years we've had a lot of conversations around the Me Too campaign and International Women's Day and then when you look at figures like this it's slightly disappointing because as you say it's not moving the dial the way we want to even though there is a new focus of attention on women in the workplace women on boards it's not really moving at the pace that Maybe sometimes would suggest in the media that we've got a new sort of realization on issues such as this. No, you're
2: right, and and that goes from the intang- from the intangible feel of an organisation to the tangible output. The of culture, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would think since the pandemic, a lot of employers, a significant number of employers are placing much more focus on flexibility as a core part of their people value proposition. I know we've embraced it very heavily in PwC as, as a significant part of our people experience. I'm also very aware of organisations launching much more inclusive policies who which support their employees through various stages of their lives. So again, using PwC as an example, we've recently launched um, menopause programmes, a policy around domestic abuse. Pregnancy loss, fertility and again that is all creating an environment where people, male and female, feel much more supported.
0: Well look at the end of the day sunlight as they say is the best disinfectant so thank you for sh- sharing some of your information with us. I've certainly found it very interesting for now. That was Dune to Use tax partner in PwC's people and organisation practice. Dune thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks Mandy. And happy International Women's Day. Thank you, same to you. Up next, Murdoch's role in Trump's election lie. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, in his seventy-one years as a media. Executive Rupert Murdoch has proven himself more than once to be the grand master when it comes to the art of surviving. But a recent testimony by him has caused uproar as he has not only admitted that he knew his Fox News hosts were spreading lies about the 2020 election campaign being stolen from Donald Trump, he also confessed that he'd allowed them to keep spreading the lies to millions of his viewers. I'm joined now by Jeremy W. Peters of the New York Times. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us today on News Talk.
3: I'm glad to be here.
0: Now, Jeremy, let's just kick off with some context for this for our listeners. What exactly is the court case that Dominion voting system lawsuit that's going on and who are the interested parties?
3: So after the 2020 election, Donald Trump and his allies began uh, spreading various conspiracy theories for why he had lost. Uh, and, And one of those that really caught hold was this idea that voting machines had somehow been hacked and votes that were supposed to go to Donald Trump were switched to Joe Biden. Now, of course, this is preposterous. It never happened. But the company that came under the most intense scrutiny from the far right in the United States was Dominion Voting Systems and the news network that spread some of the most insidious and false claims about Dominion voting system was Rupert Murdoch's Fox News. Well, after pleading with Fox News uh, in, in thousands and thousands of emails and text messages sent to Fox producers, hosts, and executives... Dominion didn't get anywhere. Fox never corrected these falsehoods. Uh, They didn't stop airing them, in fact, for weeks uh, after until weeks after the election was was completed. And Dominion sued. They sued for defamation and they're asking for one point six billion dollars because of the damage they say that was done to their brand. Now that this lie is firmly embedded uh, in, in the belief system of uh, millions and millions of American conservatives.
0: And that defamation case that is ongoing at the moment is where Rupert Murdoch gave his, gave his testimony. And we'll get to that in a second. But as part of the case, your thousands of emails were made public. Can you just tell us a bit about what was in those emails and what they revealed about the culture within the, the organisation of Fox News?
3: So one of the biggest questions hanging over this case and indeed uh, one of the, the biggest hurdles with American defamation law is being able to prove that the person you are accusing of defamation knew what they were saying was false but said it anyway. And that requires getting inside the heads of the people you're accusing Dominion Voting Systems was able to do that through these emails and text messages and depositions. And what they've revealed is that while Fox News was telling its viewers one story on its airwaves after the 2020 election, a story of this massive non-existent conspiracy to uh, steal the election from Donald Trump, Executives behind the scenes at Fox News, including Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan, uh, who oversee all of the Fox media empire, were saying privately that they thought Donald Trump and his lawyers were crazy and unhinged and that they didn't believe there was enough fraud that could have possibly happened To reverse the results of the election. And what this shows, Dominion hopes to prove to a jury, is that Fox knew that what they were putting on the air was wrong, but did it anyway in a reckless and relentless pursuit of profits and ratings.
0: Yeah, that leads us to Rupert Murdoch's evidence in the box under oath. He's using the word endorsed. Um, and you might talk us through what the implications for his testimony are for him and for this case in general, in your view.
3: Right. Well, that's a very important legal distinction you just highlighted there, that word "endorse." Now, it's one thing if Fox News had just gone to its broadcasts with news of Donald Trump's claims, his false claims. You are allowed under American law in most cases, uh, or in many cases, to repeat a lie that's being told by a newsmaker uh, as long as it's newsworthy. And Fox would argue in this case that that's exactly what its hosts did. They were merely repeating the accusations that Trump and his supporters were making. Well, that's not what the evidence shows Fox did. In fact, if you go back and you look at the transcripts of these shows, it's, it's very clear that in numerous instances, the hosts were endorsing this lie that the election was stolen from him. They weren't just saying Trump alleges or Trump's attorney has accused Dominion of stealing votes. The hosts were saying that it had happened and that fraud was, was, was being committed on a scale that that's, that that was just impossible.
0: Mm. So they're in effect, they're complicit in the lie.
3: That's what Dominion is arguing, and mm. that is why that if, if a jury decides that Fox and its hosts and executives were complicit in that lie, then Fox will lose this case.
0: And I suppose those Fox anchors um, uh, on Fox News, uh, you know, you might explain to our listeners, we don't get Fox News here in Ireland in some ways, <laughs> that might be a very good thing. But those anchors are often seen as, as power brokers in Republican politics, aren't they? Um, and are they Definitely. leaning more on that, their right to, to, to free speech and, and using their views to kind of promote Trump? Does this come down to it's all about the Trump support and not losing that for Fox?
3: Well, that's exactly what Dominion has alleged, and what some of these emails prove that Rupert Murdoch emailed the chief executive of Fox News at one point and said CNN, their, their rival news network here in the United States, was, getting, was creaming Fox News in the ratings. And they were worried about losing their stature, uh, as the, uh, their, their stature which is, is, is enormously important to their profitability, as the most watched cable news network in the United States. And the reason they were losing that is Trump and his base saw Fox News as disloyal, Because they had actually done something correct, something that like journalistically on the up and up, which is Fox News was the first American news organization to project that Joe Biden would win the very important swing state of Arizona. They, they did that before the other news networks were willing to go out on that limb. Mm. And to see Fox do that really surprised a lot of people in the United States because, we're, you know, we assume that they're right-leaning and that they would never do anything to undermine Donald Trump. Well, that wasn't always the case. But Fox executives saw the cost of that, the cost of telling the truth to their audience, mm. which – is what their audience didn't want to hear. And so what these emails show in this lawsuit is that after seeing viewers flee Fox News because they perceived Fox as being somehow disloyal to Trump, Fox executives reverse course and start parroting Trump's lies.
0: Yes indeed Uh, if you're just tuning in you're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk and I'm talking to Jeremy W. Peters from the New York Times about the ongoing court case uh, involving the election campaign in 2020 in the United States Jeremy um, I just want to quote a line from an article that you you recently wrote which is an excellent article and covers this uh, in great detail but you say ever since Donald J. Trump announced his presidential campaign in 2015 Rupert Murdoch and his Fox News channel have struggled with how to handle the man and the movement they helped create a sort of Frankenstein if you like uh, Donald Trump that they can no longer control but when when Rupert Murdoch gave his testimony this week um, there was a level of shock but like, should we really be shocked? It's hardly shocking to know that Rupert Murdoch has often flexed his editorial muscle, and um, so so why was this one uh, you know why, why did this catch the attention so much? Do you think was it just confirming what a lot of us suspected?
3: Yes, I think that um, what a lot of people have often wondered with with good reason is was Fox News being upfront with its audience? were they uh, actually true believers in Trump and his movement? Or were they just using Trump because he was convenient to their business model? And I think what you saw in in Rupert's uh, testimony that he gave in this deposition and what you saw in his private emails is what reporters like me who've covered him for a while and covered Fox News have have known all along is that he has great animosity uh, for Donald Trump and he's never really respected Donald Trump. Now that of course isn't exactly compatible with having Donald Trump be this huge profit driver for your media empire. Mm. So when he says that he thinks Trump is crazy and, you know, there's this old story that famously, uh, when, when Ivanka Trump told Rupert Murdoch in 2015, that her father was running for president, Rupert supposedly didn't even look up from his soup at lunch and said, no, he isn't. Mm. So there's this, you know, this, this long history between these two men and you know, the, I think the 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 curtain has finally been peeled back, and you can see just how little respect people inside Fox News, all the way up to the top, uh, have had for Donald Trump for so long. But yet, they've given him such a platform because they were captive to their audience. This is what their audience wanted and they had no choice if they wanted to be number one.
0: Mm. So who are some of those big household names that Rupert Murdoch said were actually going on the air um, you know, falsifying, to use a better word, their commentary?
3: So the biggest would be Sean Hannity. Um, Sean Hannity is probably the most loyal to this day ally of President Trump's um, on Fox News.
0: I read in um, your piece there that you said though he was he's privately disgusted by Trump. So
3: he was at the moment. Yeah, I mean and that's the thing. Like mm. in the moment of in the aftermath of January sixth, I think. There were there weren't many Americans who weren't horrified by what they saw. But the problem and, and, you know, Fox News has played a huge role in this is the rewriting of history around January 6th. And Sean Hannity has played a big role in that, saying that it's nothing more. Uh, than, than a, uh, uh, to, to go investigate the attacks and prosecute the people who, who who perpetrated them is nothing more than another witch hunt of Trump and his supporters, so people like Sean Hannity have had a huge role in shaping uh, the, the narrative that President Trump wants out there among his supporters, and that 's that he is uh, uh, hunted constantly by his enemies in the political establishment and the media.
0: Jeremy I have a million more questions for you but time is, is sadly quickly running out for us so I just want to try and get your sense of the implications of this trial for for the wider question really because there's other um, court cases that will be ongoing the insurrection on Capitol Hill all of the investigations in, in relation to Trump so how important is this uh, case in your view on, on the one hand it's just kind of immediate. Court case that we all like looking at because it sort of resembles a bit of succession, uh, the the HBO yeah. box office. But there, it is an important juncture. What what's your view about how how it could affect other things?
3: So all those investigations that you mentioned, um, none of them have really resulted in the, the 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 type of you know conclusive judgment against Trump. The the, the kind of accountability. Um, that that people have long sought uh, for the kinds of of lies uh, and, and and the misinformation that Trump and his supporters have spread that have 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 really undermined the democratic system in the United States. Trump has been impeached twice, but not removed from office. He was investigated by a special counsel um, throughout his presidency, that resulted in no charges uh, against him um numerous state and local investigations are looking into how he and his various businesses have conducted themselves nothing has resulted in an indictment um uh that 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 gets at the an indictment at the top of the trump um organization this case offers that chance Mm -hmm. that if and it's a very strong case it's 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 one of the strongest defamation cases that legal experts tell me they've ever seen and so if Trump is, uh, if Fox is held accountable, that would be the kind of reckoning that I think a lot of people in the United States, um, who felt that Donald Trump and and his his movement were a threat to democracy, uh, they would like to see. Now, if Fox wins, I think what you're left with is a question of. What do American defamation laws really do? What what purpose do they serve if the President of the United States and his his key supporters in this enormous media organisation can go on television and lie for weeks and weeks and weeks and get away with it? The system must be broken.
0: Absolutely fascinating stuff. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. I've certainly enjoyed our discussion, but for now we'll have to leave it there. That was Jeremy W. Peters of the New York Times. Jeremy, thank you very much.
3: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Well, Shine, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast First from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, we'll be talking about wind farms and scam influencers. So if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks, as always, to today's guest and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo de Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof, and then it's Gavin Riley with On the Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening, and Sloan August Bannock.